Welcome to That's What She Said, a podcast of sermons at Galileo Christian Church, Disciples of Christ. Galileo exists to seek and shelter spiritual refugees, who for us are people for whom the church has become boring, irrelevant, exclusive, or even painful, especially people who have been pushed out because of their gender or sexuality. If you yourself are a spiritual refugee, we're especially glad you're listening. I'm continuing tonight the readings we've been doing from 2 Samuel. We're studying sort of the David cycle of stories among uh, the stories of our ancestors in faith and their history, which is our history. Um, And thinking about the complexity of David the man and um, the possibility of cancel culture and whether we still need him in our story. I'm just considering that over several weeks. And tonight I'm reading from 2 Samuel chapter 7. Uh, This story is built around a pun That's not a trigger warning. Trigger warnings are very serious. But if you have a thing with puns, I just wanted to give you a heads up. Um, House in this text can mean a literal structure where someone lives. Or house, same vocabulary as in English it is in Hebrew, metaphorically can mean a dynasty or a legacy or a name or an ethos that gets passed down from one generation to the next. As in fashion, for example, you could have the house of Chanel or the house of Prada, which would mean many designers working under that one name and that one style. As in drag, where queens who compete in drag balls come under the care and tutelage of a house and a house mother and adopt the house mother's surname and offer each other support as a family of choice, a house. Note that in this story from 2 Samuel 7, David is thinking literally and God is thinking metaphorically. Now when the king was settled in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, the king said to the prophet Nathan, See now, I am living in a house of cedar, but the ark of God stays in a tent. Nathan said to the king, go, do all that you have in mind, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, are you the one to build me a house to live in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I've been moving about in a tent and a tabernacle. Wherever I have moved about among all the people of Israel, did I ever speak a word with any of the tribal leaders of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, to be prince over my people Israel, And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and plant them so that they may live in their own place and be disturbed no more. And evildoers shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest 
from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come forth from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him. He shall be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will punish him with a rod such as mortals use with blows inflicted by human beings. But I will not take my steadfast love from him. As I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. David's got that peaceful, easy feeling. You know, he's, he's settled, their narrator says, settled in his house. All that lumber that arrived as a gift from King Hiram of Tyre back in chapter 5 has now been built into a royal palace. He's got all his pictures hung and all the furniture assembled. All the dishes are put away and there's food in the fridge. Moreover, at least for this moment, David and his army are not currently fighting anybody. The troops have all come home. Israel's enemies have all retreated. What you may not know, because we have not been reading every word of 2 Samuel, is that David's royal hands are covered in blood. He has attacked and defended and battled his way all the way to this throne, and it's hardly going to stop for the rest of his reign this story in chapter 7 describes a brief respite from bloodshed for our ancestors' warrior king. Anyway, it's a lovely feeling, that settled feeling. You stash the sword and saddle. You recline in your favorite chair in front of the fireplace with a brandy and a cigar. You let your mind run over all that you've accomplished, all the things on your to-do list that have been enthusiastically checked off. Publicly grieve the deaths of your predecessor and most of his sons, including the one who had your heart? Check. Unite the northern and southern tribes of the kingdom under your singular command? Check. Establish an impressive capital city by kicking out the ones who built it? Check. Reclaim that wife you lost in the political battle with the former king? so that now you're his son-in-law again, check. Get out of storage the antique Ark of the Covenant, God's own footstool from Israel's early territory conquering days, and give it a new home. Almost check on that last one. David the settled is also David the unsettled, as his eye falls on the tent that covers the Ark of the Covenant his ancestors built to honor and hold God's presence. A tent, he says to Nathan, his 
personal divinity liaison, his spiritual advisor, the member of his administration whose job it is to pray for David and speak for God, a tent. How can I have a house like this and God is out there like a boy scout at a jamboree? We got to do something about that, Nathan. It's not a good look. And what if God gets a better offer somewhere else? What then? What do you think? Now, this is the first time in the narrative that we have met Nathan, the prophet. And here we're going to learn something important about him. He feels the same pressure that any of us would to say yes to the most powerful person in the room. As he tells David immediately, yep, good plan, do it, build that house for the God of the universe. It's all you, O king. And we learn here that Nathan ultimately answers to a higher power than the most powerful person in the room. And when God's own self helps Nathan think it through overnight, Nathan is the kind of person who's willing to go back to David and say, new information has come to light, man. As it turns out, God doesn't want you to build God a house. Not so much because God loves sleeping in a tent, but because God is... Um, kind of concerned that you've got this all backwards. Now, let's just pause here with Nathan returning to David the next day with this new advice. It's a lovely little demonstration of something that's all too rare in our experience of life in the human family. Someone has an initial idea, an originary opinion, and they say that thing right out loud in front of God and everybody. And then they think it through. You know, maybe praying through the night or praying through the years for insight. And they come to a new conclusion, a better idea, a more informed opinion. And then they say that one right out loud in front of God and everybody. They say, I thought about it. I prayed about it. And the thing I said before was wrong. And here's what I understand now that I did not understand before. <laughs> in our culture... You can get canceled for a thing you thought or said or did before you knew better. And you can earn a heaping pile of distrust and public ridicule for confessing that you've changed your mind over time. Perhaps, church, we could resolve to be more like Nathan in 2 Samuel 7, always listening, praying through our insomnia, ready to let God show us something new and unafraid to confess in the morning that yesterday's thoughts have been transformed. Perhaps we could resolve to be kinder to the Nathans we know who are on a learning curve, who are paying attention and figuring things out and slowly doing better day by day, season by season, as humans do sometimes. Anyway. Weightier by far than any lesson we can take from Nathan or David in this story is what we learn about God in this overnight exchange. God starts off with the kind of resistance you might get from a house guest who just doesn't want you to go to any trouble. Oh, pish, they might say. I'll just sleep here on the sofa. I'll be fine. Only with God, it's more like I stayed in a tent for all those years in the frickin' desert without a complaint. 
And then you kept my ark in a storage locker where nobody thought anything about it for generations. Now you want to build me a house? To which David might answer if this were a dialogue. Yeah, yeah, God, but now I'm settled, see? And I've got time now to think about you and where you stay and I've got some money and I'm consolidating all the sources of power I can think of and I'd just really like to bring you in on it. You know, settle you here in Jerusalem for the long term, brick and mortar this time so everybody will know that you are ours, only ours, no one else's, ours alone. Only Lucky for David, it's not really a dialogue. And God has already figured out that David is working his checklist. And one of the very last items on that list is install God's presence permanently in Jerusalem, i.e. build a temple, the house of the Lord, so that anybody who wants access to God has to come to the city of David. It's that idea to which God says, by working with Nathan in the night kitchen, oh, hells no. God is seriously not interested in being subject to David's sovereignty, the recipient of a favor from David. God tells Nathan to tell David that God is the one working a plan here, that it is nice to have David's cooperation, but there should be no mistake about with whom the initiative lies. The way this plays out rhetorically in chapter 7 is that God gives Nathan a script in which God's own self is the subject of just about every sentence. Starting in verse 4 with that very first, thus says the Lord, here is how those sentences go. God asks, are you the one to build me a house to live in? And then God begins to answer God's own rhetorical question. I have not lived in a house. I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt. I have been moving about in a tent. I have moved about among all the people. I never spoke a word. I commanded tribal leaders. And then there's another, thus says the Lord, just for emphasis in verse 8, and it starts all over again. I took you from the pasture. I've been with you wherever you went. I have cut off all your enemies from before you. I will make for you a great name. I will appoint a place for my people Israel. I appointed judges over my people Israel. I will give you rest from all your enemies. And then in verse 11, there's a moreover, and you know that God is just taking one of those real deep breaths to start again and reinforce the point that David is not in charge here, except insofar as God has allowed his government to exist. That God is still running this show. That David is in danger of getting too big for his britches, which we hope he is wearing after that embarrassing episode with the linen ephod last week. And the moreover where is where God turns David's idea just completely upside down. You want to build me a house, God says? Oh, no, honey, you've got that all wrong. I'm the master architect here. I'm the creative genius here. I'm building you a house, dum-dum, and you can't even see it. In my head, God here sounds like Electra Abundance at the peak of her power as the house mother of the house of abundance. And if you can't hear that, I'm just sorry. Yeah. <clears throat> so, yeah. 
God is building David a house, and David can't see it, maybe in part because he's been a little preoccupied the last couple decades trying, well, you know, to not get killed, scrambling to fulfill his destiny in a world that is quite hostile to his becoming the whole person he's meant to be. Maybe we could say that David has become very present moment focused, thinking about things like staying alive and getting roofs over heads. And here God is pressing him to take a longer view, a multi-generational view, a horizon that one really ought to be able to see from that settled state of mind David is currently enjoying. I really feel like God would be saying something similar to us now if we were listening to our Nathans, if we were listening to the ones who help us take the long view, the ones who think in centuries rather than 24-hour news cycles, if we were listening to the ones who tell us that the world is burning, that the earth is exhausted, that the Gulf Stream is collapsing, that biodiversity is suffering. If we were listening to the ones who tell us that we cannot go on this way if we intend for our children and grandchildren to experience the goodness of God's creation. Friends, taking the long view is hard. It pulls initiative and direct action out of our hands and presses us to work for goals that just don't yield immediate results. It forces us to reckon with our temporality, our mortality, our limitations. It forces us to put a future that we will never see in front of the comforts of this present moment. That's exactly what God is asking David to do, if asking is the right verb here. God is opening David's eyes to the reality that his kingship, his sovereignty, his warfare, and his rest, it's all but a blip in time. God's planning, by contrast, extends so far into the future that David can't even imagine it. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your ancestors, God says, i.e., when you're dead, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come forth from your body, and I will not, listen, and I will not take my steadfast love from your offspring your house, your kingdom, shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Another reason David might not have been able to see what God was doing with him and his offspring and his house forever is because, and really, you should check me on this, is because God had never before articulated an unconditional promise to remain steadfastly committed to anyone, not to Israel, 
or Israel's future or any of Israel's citizens, 2 Samuel 7 actually represents a turning point in the narration of the history of our ancestors in faith. It's the time that God dropped the if-then clauses of their covenant with God and opted instead for full and almost certainly asymmetric commitment to their future, come what may. To wit, in Exodus 19, shortly after those loosely organized tribes of Israelites escaped their Egyptian slavery, God summoned Moses to the top of Mount Sinai for some, you know, relationship-building exercises. And this is what God said in Exodus 19, starting in verse 3. Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the Israelites, you have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my treasured possession out of all the peoples. A bit later, but still well before David's time, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, just before Moses releases the Israelites to follow Joshua into the promised land, Moses told the people this. One of the last things he ever told them, he said, Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the ordinances that the Lord your God charged me to teach you to observe in the land that you're about to cross into and occupy so that you and your children and your children's children may fear the Lord your God all the days of your life and keep all his decrees and all his commandments that I am commanding you, so that your days may be long. Hear, therefore, O Israel, and observe them diligently so that it may go well with you and so that you may multiply greatly in a land flowing with milk and honey as the Lord, the God of your ancestors, has promised you. Israel's covenant with God had always been reciprocal. Y'all do this, and I'll do that, God would say, such that bad behavior or simple inattention on the people's part would be, could be, the cause for God to just ease on down the road with God's ark and God's tent and all God's stuff, maybe find God's self some better people who would try harder. And then Nathan, after one lousy night's sleep, utters his dynastic oracle to David. That's what that speech is, technically a dynastic oracle. It means a prophetic announcement that this particular genetic line will enjoy God's favor no matter what. <laughs> no matter how shitty they are to each other, no matter how badly they run this kingdom, no matter how irreligious they become. And this is the moment that everything changes. This is the moment that David realizes and we realize that God is in this with us for the long haul, no matter what. It is the essence of grace. It is the definition of mercy. See, we usually get that backwards, you know? We imagine 
that grace is the stuff we need after we've screwed up, after we've hurt someone, after we've wandered way off the path that God has paved for us. But here is God in 2 Samuel 7, announcing through Nathan to David that God's grace is prevenient. That is, it's present. It's on the table before you even know you need it. It's a declaration of God's steadfast love, unchanging love over the long arc of generations to come, unalterable by any one person's momentary lapse of faith or ethics. It does not come too soon for David because, spoiler alert, his story is going downhill fast from this point on. Before he lies down with his ancestors, as God so colloquially puts it, there will be literally no part of his life that is unfucked up. We're going to get on that downhill slide with him next Sunday. There will be content considerations next Sunday. And maybe, maybe we will wonder whether God ever, you know, regretted it. Making that huge and long-lasting promise to someone like David, so enamored of his own power, so corrupted by his own hungers, so chaotic to the people around him. Or maybe the more we know about David, our ancestor in faith, maybe we will recognize God's freedom, God's unwillingness to be settled in one spot, God's fierce resistance to manipulation for the legitimation of anyone else's agenda, God's freedom. And maybe we will recognize God's freedom to love as God pleases, lavishly, recklessly, far beyond the bounds of our deserving, far beyond the contingencies of our good behavior. And of course, maybe we'll also recognize God's freedom to love people that we do not. God is free. God is love. God is free to love. And if God can love David like that, God can love anybody like that. Thanks be to God. Thanks for listening to That's What She Said. This podcast is preached almost always by our lead evangelist, Reverend Dr. Katie Hayes. Galileo Church has five missional priorities. We do justice for LGBTQ plus people and those who love them. We do kindness to those in mental and emotional distress and celebrate neurodiversity. We do beauty for our God who is beautiful. We do real relationship, no bullshit, ever. And we do whatever it takes to share this good news with the world God still loves. To support the production of this podcast and the ongoing missional priorities of this church, go to GalileoChurch.org and click on Conspire With Us. You'll have options to use your Venmo or PayPal, or use your credit card or bank account. Any amount helps, and if you're kind enough to share your contact information with us, 
will continually send you thanks. Peace.